0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to our second interview. Um, we've brought back uh, Rani, Christine and Roger to, to have this discussion about we're really starting to move on to the solution side of things. You know, We've talked about in the previous video the challenges and the current issues we faced with the framework. Not saying that um, evidence-based medicine or challenging evidence-based medicine in the way that it's done. It's more about how we can expand and how we can improve on the things that we're already doing quite well. And especially when it comes to uh, with with what Cause Health is doing, talking about how we can manage our patients better as individuals. And that's the big, big topic that we're going to cover today, which is this um, Cause Health's approach to evidence-based medicine, which is called dispositionalism. Uh, which is the an approach to how we essentially organise uh, and think about lots of the different bits of evidence and and bring it all together, and in terms of understanding uh, how uh, we can do do uh, evidence based medicine better. So thanks everyone for for coming back and joining me. Uh, what we'll do is we'll jump straight in um, with with Rani. Can you explain, you know, what is dispositionalism and and why is it um, a much better way of looking at the human body?
1: So one thing that we uh, we do in the causal health project is that we take uh, cause and effect relationships and we look at them in a more qualitative way. So we look at the qualities involved, the properties involved in a causal process, and we try to say that this. Uh, interactions between properties is what we need to understand in order to understand uh, causation and in order also to predict what is going to happen. So we, we, t- uh, we call these uh, properties dispositions because they are kind of potential properties that exist even if they're not manifested in something directly observable. So for instance, you can have something that is fragile or someone who is fertile or something that is explosive. And of course, while they have these properties, you don't see any change on the surface. But these kinds of properties, they still are uh, what we call causally powerful. Because when they manifest, causation happens. So when someone who is fertile becomes pregnant, that's a manifestation. So causation has happened. Um, And when uh, a match lights, uh, it goes from being flammable to, to burning um so we're saying that if we want to really understand um how for instance a treatment is going to work we need to look at the dispositional properties of that treatment but also the dispositional properties of the person getting the treatment and their context
0: yeah so i guess we're, we're sort of identifying that um, if we think bo- both from uh, a condition perspective that if someone develops a condition, it's not just the, the things that we might see that's really relevant to to the situation. So we think about someone who develops tendon pain, there's potentially uh, we always look at loading, like how much they run, how much they do. Um, there may be a lot of other factors, although there are a lot of other factors that will make it so that when they do go running that one time, they start to develop, a tendon pain or they start to develop a tendinopathy uh, it's not just that one thing that they did and what you're saying for for treatments the same sort of thing is that if someone's going to respond to a treatment there's lots of other context and things that go into whether that treatment's going to work it's not just the case of we've chosen the right um, condition and the right treatment for the condition it's that there's all this other context and I'm I'm thinking about if, you know, for tendinopathy, it's, it, does someone have a rheumatological condition? Um, has someone had previously had tendinopathy has, um, are there lots of other factors like stress, sleep, things that could be confounding why that came about in this one person compared to another. Is that, is that sort of on, along the right track?
1: Yeah, because, um, very often when we think of cause and effect, we think of the kind of stimulus or the trigger. Mm. And then we think of the outcome that is immediate. So if you have someone who who gets ill or gets damaged or something, we think, what happened just immediately before? (laughs) That is the cause. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: But actually, a lot of these dispositions, they can take a long time to manifest. So it might be something that is going on underneath the surface for a long time, and then more and more dispositions coming to Uh, the situation, because we say that causation is always complex. There's never just one thing. So instead of thinking of trigger, which is the cause, and then the manifestation as the effect, we should think of, for instance, mutual manifestation partners, we call it. So we call it like a partner. It's like when you say a glass is fragile. If you want it to break, you have to hit it with something hard. So a hammer, for instance, could be a mutual manifestation partner. So... And the same with the striking of the match for it to light. You need also the oxygen. So you might say the oxygen is the background conditions, but actually the oxygen is really, really important. So if you take it away, uh, nothing is going to happen. So what we're saying is that the reason why we say that something is relevant background conditions is because there are dispositional properties in that background that are influencing uh, the causal situation. So the more we understand about the previous background (laughs) and the context of the person getting it and also the history leading up, we will understand more about which dispositions are there working underneath the surface that might suddenly reach a threshold and manifest themselves. So Mm. it might be that some tiny, tiny trigger um, gets a huge outcome. And then we think, why on earth would that tiny trigger uh mm. triggers such a massive outcome well it's because something massive was there underneath building up so mm. it's just like the last straw that broke the camel's back
0: <laughs> well i guess yeah when we when we link it back to to what we're discussing in the, in the first interview which was um especially when we think about you know randomized controlled t- trials being this gold standard um you know, and we're thinking about there's all this background sort of information and context, really, you know, we can start to identify why RCTs are, are really helpful. It strips out a lot of that sort of stuff and focuses on the topic uh, at hand, all this subject that, that the study has been designed for to look at. But what it doesn't tell us is really how that exactly is going to operate in the real world, because we've stripped out all that context, all of those mutual manifestation partners, all the things that are going to help either a condition develop or a treatment become effective we've stripped all them out so we've missed all that information and i guess that sort of goes on to to um roger's point on um previously on evidential pluralism is that we need um we need uh, a lot of different bits of evidence to sort of understand all of those those partners yeah so it's,
3: so if i just come in if that's okay uh, again to, to reinforce those, those sort of I- ideas and again to get to get that balance between um you know the cause health dispositionalism isn't dismissing the role of of of, of any particular methodology at least, least of all randomized controlled trials and they do have a role in trying to help us understand um the the complexity of of, of what's hap, what's happening uh, but it is that very stripping away of the confounders that you know is both the you know that's the strength of a randomized control trial that that's that's what the high evidential hierarchy is is built on the, the idea of internal validity um and that being to control variables as much as possible And the way to do that is to, is to randomize and, and strip away and control for conf- to confounding the very things that that influence um, causation in in the real world so we do look le- we do learn from randomized control trials but we, we've we've just got to keep sense of what is it we're learning and and a lot of randomized control trials are, you know obviously placebo control trials and, and um, tell us about the way something might work, so, so they're really efficacy tr- trials rather than effectiveness trials. They're they, they looking if you know if you strip away as much as possible, you get to learn something about the effect of a particular variable, which, which is useful information. But it tells you it tells you the effect of it in that particular trial setting in that very internally valid and controlled setting. But again, once you flip to to another context. Um, Everything changes and it doesn't necessarily change saying, well, that that trial result is no longer applicable because it it may be, but it's it's applicable in a different context. And it might not. It might work and it might it might not work. But that direct taking of an outcome of a trial to 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 real world practices. Is is, it's not it's not complete science, it's not complete practice. But again, I don't think the originators of the evidence-based practice model ever intended it to be a complete framework for clinical practice. You know, it, it was of its time. It was the best thing to do of its time to rationalize and, and, and try and get a better sense of effectiveness and efficacy. But it's, it doesn't really explain clinical practice in its entirety. And there's almost two things, you know, evidence-based practice and clinical, cl- clinical reasoning as such. And always in my mind, dispositionalism has been, has been the framework that, that brings those those things together. So you, you can't just put the, the, the strict principles of evidence-based practice into, into a clinical reasoning framework because it doesn't, because it doesn't fit, because a clinical reasoning framework is all about considering other other bits of information and working with the patient and shared decision making so you you can't just plug and play with that but but what dispositionalism is offering is a framework to to make that work a bit better and consider other sources of evidence and and other variables and and you know in in the terminology of dispositionalism what are the mutual manifestation partners and what's the process of causation rather than what the the two the two events the stimuli and and the effect so it's it's offering that opportunity to wide to widen the market and and think about other sources of information and what is going on in this particular uh uh, context the, the the flip side to that is pragmatic randomized control trials where you say well let 's forget about controlling for vari- variables and just look at a real world what 's happening in, in 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 practice in real world, so does does physiotherapy or does podiatry work something in a much broader sense and have a pragmatic randomized controlled trial, which again gives you some information about the real world, but then it 's lost the value of of why a randomized control trial sits at the top because it 's lost all its internal validity. So this, the science of an RCT is then suddenly lost in, in, in favor of, 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 of a view of sort of normal patterns of the world, which again is good information, but it doesn't necessarily then directly translate to your next patient or what you should what you should do at clinical practice or at a population level, but it's still useful information. But dispositionalism is all about gaining more information about that context and having uh um a more meaningful appreciation of of complexity and what that means variables affecting each other in an unpredictable way in in that in that in that space and at that
0: time i think i think that's that i do definitely sort of have a go at an rct um a little bit more and i think that that's that's important to keep in mind and and i guess i do do sort of jump on the rct sort of and give it a bit of a flog just simply because i think it's it's not that it's bad but it's just because you know whenever um you know i end up in discussions at conferences and things i think you know the way that we've been taught the way that sort of or way that sort of naturally evolved is really that the rct is the arbiter of truth it is telling us what's really happening um or because it's so internally valid it's it's explaining what we need to know and I always think of the the Tom Goom saying where he's where um or a quote uh, it was along uh, along the lines of you know we're using evidence to throw bricks at each other not using them those bricks to build a wall and I think that explains dispositionalism quite a lot where it's taking it's like where does this fit rather than this being this is the heaviest and biggest brick and so we're going to throw that at people to say I'm right you're wrong or my 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 perspective is better rather than saying, well, we've got this, when we have this controlled setting and we have this controlled setup and we have these study designs, this is what we get. How does that fit with, when we design a study over here that that looks like this and how does it fit in with this information over here and sort of building that, you know, albeit very confusing wall, but starting to, you know, and and very sort of not always a neat uh, wall, but building a wall nevertheless that has its job, which is for us understanding really the mechanisms of why something happens rather than just if it happens um, is sort of the way I've I've been looking at it. If, do you have anything to, would you would you add anything to that, Rani?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's uh, one of the <clears throat> wake-ups <laughs> uh, when it came to Coase self was when uh, uh, Roger was saying at the conference that I organized that when you do an RCT, um, you have a test group and you have a control And of course, causation itself doesn't happen in the difference between those two, which is what the RCT is reporting, because the RCT is reporting whether there is a statistically significant difference between the test group and the the control. But if you don't give it to the control, something still happened within the individuals in the test group. So if we want to understand um, um, the causal effect of treatment dispositionally, the real causation happens not on the statistical level of what you can detect from such a study. It happens within, intrinsic in those individuals. And in those individuals, it's going to be very different things going on. And because they will have very different contexts, but the reporting of the results is only the stimulus and the effect, and maybe a couple of other types of information that is relevant. But Again, coming back to the if, if, if what you're doing when you're uh, studying causation is to see how often when you strike a match, it will light. It doesn't tell you why in 50% of the cases it didn't light or in some of the cases it really burst into big flames. So, you know, if you light the candle after spraying the room uh, with, the, with the gold paint, uh, it's going to be a very big flame. So, but if you do it, if you strike a match in rain and wind, it's not going to be uh, any flames. So, what is actually happening in the individual cases causally is not what is necessarily reported. It's just reported whether you got the effect or not, and nothing about the explanation. So, what you need to do from a dispositionalist perspective is to go into the individual cases and understand more about the conditions, and maybe there is something there that can be generalized into causal mechanisms, which could feed your theory. Because all of our knowledge is theoretically informed, we understand how the body works, uh, and we understand how a person is interacting with its uh, with its context and how life events is going to effect, affect affect um our health for instance so it, we cannot simply remove that kind of knowledge this knowledge is really crucial and it's also the type of knowledge you learn in your education so you cannot just replace your education with uh, a lot of data um and uh, and results from results from these studies
0: i think i think that's it it's it's we're very sort of much and I guess this comes down to also the business of medicine as well, that when we think about, you know, hospitals and, and and how we apply the most effective care evidence-based medicine, you know, takes a role in, okay, what is the most effective thing to do? If we're going to buy, you know, a drug, if we're going to, you know, have a contract with a supplier, who's going to supply X treatment or we're going to hire more physios or doctors or get a new MRI, all these sorts of decisions have to be made on a, perspective of what is going to be the most value for money and so the evidence really sort of focuses quite high level population making these sort of decisions but it very much doesn't focus on every individual case i mean if you're looking to buy a new mri machine for a hospital or hire a couple of new physios you aren't going to interview every single you know all the thousands of patients and figure out exactly what's happening in all of them you have to take a higher view um, which is useful, but again, it's sort of fitting it in. So I always think of it as sort of like a two-dimensional image. We're only getting so much from an, from a, a, a um, some of these studies because they're not going deeper, but that's still incredibly useful information. Um, we can sort of start to understand, well, if something is completely no better than sham, is it is it worth delving into how it works um, compared to other treatments? Um,
3: yeah, so it's, if it's okay to... To just jump in there, there again. Um, again, y- y- you know, there's this idea that we're fighting against, that you know, the, not fighting against, but w- but actually working with the, you know, those early ideas of, of uh, you know Archie Cochrane's book on the effectiveness and uh, of, of healthcare in in terms of clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness. So this is all about rationalising healthcare considering the resources we've got and it's really intuitive to say well what what works best and we'll buy that and not 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 waste resources on other other stuff but there's something i think that fundamental starting point could be challenged in terms of it's always been the case that which thing works best which 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 drug or which intervention or which single stimulus works works best and let, let's let's do that and not not do the other stuff and perhaps in some ways that's a bit of a, a again n- not a mistake it's it's part of it's part of the old evolution of, of 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 medicine and and healthcare. but what about if we reframe that and rather than saying which is which um singular event is most effective and and said something like well well, which what process serves serves people better? Um, is it the process of just taking one treatment and applying it? Or is it a process of working with a patient and, and understanding um, their, their, their sort of story and their context and their, their their complexity and making and making some therapeutic decisions from from that? Uh, but we are so schooled in in the idea that medicine is about interventions and and what drug works best what interventions work best that it's really difficult to sort of conceptualize how that might look in a in a sort of health healthcare environment and in some ways it's it's sort of going back going back in history but we don't want it to look like that at all because it's not going back to this again we've said this a number of times it's not going back to an idea of of um of clinical freedom what was what in the 70s what was called clinical freedom where a doctor could 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 just choose whatever they wanted to do and if they thought leeches were the answer then they would they, they would do that it it's it's still using the best of scientific knowledge and information but again with with the um with the idea of complexity and context sensitivity in mind and and that causes are, are very complex and context sensitive so whatever intervention is decided upon is a result of of that process of 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 engaging with 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 a with another human being and trying to work out um, between you in a shared decision making process what is likely to 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 help them at that case and that and and the end product might not be anything that's represented in randomized controlled trials or, or something but it would be something that is very plausible biologically psychologically and socially plausible and meaningful to that person and 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 that process will be your own evidence that some that something is is working as well so so um the, the the rationalization of healthcare can still be done we can still think about cost effectiveness and you know we're we're starting to learn that the cost of the ideas of cost effectiveness by purely um, uh, investing in, in in the RCT model um, might look like a good way to cost effectiveness but there's no there's no real evidence that we've made good use of resources over the last 30, 40 years or, or, or so. We're still, we're still dealing with massive strains on the system and resources. Um, and if that model was gonna work in the way that Archie Cochrane thought it would in the 70s, surely by now we'd be seeing some sort of quite significant change in in resource uh, allocation and, and cost effectiveness of healthcare. But those things seem to be even more more problematic now than they than they were 30, 40 years ago. So it, it hasn't really been the answer to cost rationalized healthcare or cost effectiveness in the medium to, to long term. So the, the, there's still issues about that.
0: I, I think the 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 big thing that I'm sort of taking out is and and, and I've we we I've added some some lectures, you know, obviously before this on, on complexity. And I think the thing that, that I keep pulling out is that there's more than one way for people to get better. There's more than one way something can happen. We always look at that sort of model of cause and effect. There's a a thing and this happens. And therefore, if we want to stop this outcome, we have to stop this one thing from occurring. And what is the best way to stop that one thing? Um, When really there's lots of different um, dispositions all coming together that are producing an outcome. And what we're sort of identifying with this is that um, the, R- the Rcts or the way that we're looking at, at at approaching medicine overall that sort of dominant approach is really what is the one thing what is the 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 something the treatment the thing that we can do rather than focusing on the fact that well there's multiple ways that we can that that causation occurs both di- diagnosis and conditions so you know we can even think about basic things like you know diabetes is it is it always going to be just the fact that we see someone who's you um, just eating um, huge amounts of sugar. And therefore we've got to, you know, absolutely um, look at them from the perspective of that's how we're going to stop everyone from getting diabetes. Now it will probably be very helpful um, diet interventions, but it's not going to explain every case. And when we see those people, how do we, exp- that are different, how do we explain them? So there's multiple ways to get there. And if we're appreciating as well, the process, we can start to underscore underlying mechanisms. We can understand how different processes different things can all come together to produce an outcome um, that is positive um, rather than just what is that one thing didn't work, throw it away. Uh, Because ultimately I do see patients that potentially go through a lot of different treatments. I've seen this person, that person, this person, that person, then this was the one thing that worked for me. It's potentially because you've had all of these other things and they've potentially come together, or maybe it was something that changed in your life situation, exercise, all these sorts of other things um, but we do definitely have, I think, a propensity uh, as a society, not just just medicine, for that one fix. Um, Christine, do you have have something to add?
2: Yeah, um, if I can just jump in from the the patient point of view. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had lots of interventions for for my my back problem, um, most of which didn't work, but most of which probably RCTs might have said that they should have worked. And it wasn't until somebody looked at me as a complete person and looked at all my dispositions and all the other factors in my life that might be impacting on, on my pain and my condition that actually my I was able to move forward. And I have to say, you know, I must have had thousands and thousands of pounds spent on my treatment um, that were following standard interventions and so on. That was probably totally wasted but more than that it wasted a lot of my life um, i could have been treated um, in a different way in a much wider way from from almost the the very beginning and and being able to get back to a better quality of of life But but yeah, as Roger says, listening to the narrative, Ronnie says, looking at somebody in their environment with all the different things that impact on their life um, and, you know, within their body is is hugely important to to me.
0: Mm. I'm I'm thinking because I guess we we, we sort of say we've got to look at the patient, we've got to look at um, their individual dispositions and. I guess one of the, the questions that I can sort of hear potentially someone asking is that, well, how does that done? How do we do that? And I guess would it be, and this is a question for, for, for all of you guys, you know, would it be um, fair to say that there's a lot of information out there that may not always be related to uh, a specific condition? So if we, we go back to that way, we always approach it. Someone comes in with a specific diagnosis um, let's say it's a t- Achilles tendon, for example, you know, we'll often do this, the search based on what is the, you know, the the Achilles tendon. And, you know, I remember going through, you know, both my undergrad and my postgrad. And the idea was that if you're going to study something, you have to study it exactly in that environment. So, you know, uh, patella tendon, um, rotator cuff, um, all these other sort of conditions were absolutely not relevant at all to the Achilles tendon. And so it's sort of like narrowed our view. But, you know, if we're understanding things mechanistically, we're understanding pain, uh, the process of persistent pain, um, how we can help people self-manage. You know, is it fair to say there's a lot of information out there that we can potentially grab hold of and um, use to formulate a plan based on principles rather than on a strict sort of guideline? Obviously, starting with guidelines as a, this is what works for a lot of people, but you know, listening to patients and trying to understand, hey, this might this case doesn't sound like someone who's likely to respond to these sort of standardized treatments either because of previous treatments, the uh, past, maybe something that's that's saying this doesn't sound exactly like how we understand this condition to mechanistically work.
2: So certainly from my point of view, that that sounds good. And, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I I see it very much like clinicians need to have all that different range of knowledge um, and experience. And then they need to work with me as a patient and learn enough about me and my life and my condition to be able to work with me to try different treatments um, try different approaches, but also to educate me so that I can understand um, enough to be able to modify my life and and modify what I'm doing as well. Because, of course, I'm only in the clinic for a very short amount of time. Um, So, yes, all of that, I think, is important, um, but also helping the patient to understand themselves. And from
1: the dispositionalist perspective, it's also really relevant what was causing uh, the condition in the first place because you cannot just look at the symptoms and make a diagnosis uh, just from that because if you have a headache, it could be different things that is causing the headache and that would definitely (laughs) be relevant for which kind of treatment uh, you would choose because if it's stress. Uh, you would do something different than if it's a brain tumor. And uh, the same with uh, if a a back pain is caused by some particular damage, you want to target that damage. And if exercise is a good thing for that damage, it could be really harmful for another person. So uh, it's not about just talking to patients because it makes them feel heard and it makes them feel better. It's actually hard evidence that you get from knowing more and investigating more about their context. And and I think this is also uh, showing itself the lack of this um, when we have the time efficiency and cost efficiency idea that we can spend like 10 minutes on each patient and just try to, okay, so this is the problem. Here is the best solution. Let's implement that. Um, Because now it's, uh, I think when we um, worked on these medically unexplained symptoms, um, the problem is that when you have uniqueness and heterogeneity, uh, the studies are usually not going to work uh, for those people. So 30 to 50% of people coming to the GP, for instance, uh, have so-called medically unexplained conditions. And a lot of these cases is just, that we haven't really understood what is going on, what is the cause of these symptoms. And in our book, um, we have clinicians who work in a more systematic way to understand what were the things leading up uh, to their chronic conditions. And for some of these people, it's, it's major trauma in the childhood, sexual abuse. And then you cannot just target people by giving them antidepressants or giving them operations for everything that hurts. You have to you have to understand what is the context that you're dealing with.
0: Yeah, I think that's the we're talking about medically unexplained symptoms. I think that's a really good um a good way of explaining some of this sort of stuff because if we're thinking about um, what is evidence, and I know that that's something that that Cause Health has really sort of pushed, is that you know if we look at a patellofemoral pain study, you know a lot of the evidence is statistics. But it is essentially someone still filling out a questionnaire and saying, I felt better after this. And so a systematic sort of evidence-based way of treating someone can be understanding that you know, they could have uh, what is medically unexplained symptoms. When we look at patellofemoral pain syndrome, it is a syndrome. It's, it's, we don't have a mechanistic understanding of the condition itself. So from that perspective, we can be looking at, well, we've got all these ideas of load management, exercises, movements, and things in a guideline way with examples, but there's nothing wrong with sort of, figuring out, listening, understanding when it came on, what were the changes, what were different, using the patient as a source of evidence because that's literally what the studies are doing. They're just making it look like numbers and then start to formulate a plan based upon the information that, that you've gained. And I guess that sort of really speaks to that, that process of understanding studies, understanding studies design, what are they doing and why? And when we understand that, we can start to really um enhance our care, make it more evidence-based and, and patient-centered um, because of that 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 understanding. And th- this this is one thing that um, we've been
3: trying to sort of communicate as well and and, and understand more of. That the, the actual therapeutic process, you know, the the relationship between the clinician and the person with who's who's experiencing um, a period of their life that they'd rather not be. Uh, um, that, that working together, can of, just quite easily, you, you can see characteristics of, of the of of a strict scientific method within within that with the, with the hypotheses you're developing as you're talking and and the, and and using information with the patient to sort of test those hypotheses and work out what the multiple factors are doing it. So so our our clinical practice is is in. In essence, as, as scientifically robust as as a, a population level study, it, it's just that um, you know we would we would never say okay, so I've we've worked out what's going on with you, so therefore let's generalise that to the whole population, which is what a population level study intends in, in to do. And I think what you've just said, Alex and, and Ron, is headache example are, are really good. If you if you think about headaches, I mean we we've got like classification of headaches documented you know there's the international study of headaches group with with whatever 114 different classifications of headaches and, and they're sort of documented and like ronnie said you know if you've got headache class 14b c312 which is tumor then this is the this is the intervention so we know that the sin the is the sort of syndrome of headache has got all these very different uh um causes to it that, that 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 warrant different interventions if you take something like Achilles tendinopathy we haven't got sort of documentations where the international study group on Achilles tendinopathy have identified 114 call diff, different types of achilles tendinopathy but it conceptually that that could well be the case you know we don't know what the the, the makeup of somebody's painful experience just because they've got pain at the back of their heel we 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 don't really know the true nature of that um unless you explore that with 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 the patient um in the same way you'd explore some the nature of somebody's headache with a patient to try and classify them so to say something like um you know calf raising exercises is, is is the best intervention for achilles tendinopathy Is almost nonsense because what is that Achilles tendinopathy? It's made up of such a complex mix of biological, psychological and sociological phenomena. Um, And okay, we might, we might be able to explain some, some elements of of tendinopathy, like, you know, Cook's continuum model and, 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 and look at whether it's reactive or uh, you know, whatever, but that, that's only part of an explanation of, 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 of some physicality of, of the phenomena but if we really want to understand why somebody's having a pain a prolonged painful experience with pain at the back of the heel there's so much more information that we need in order to understand that um you know yeah i've got pain in the back of my heel there's something biological about that but actually that's really starting to affect me now because i've had it for three or four months How am i going to be able to run again so i'm not sleeping properly i'm worried about the effects, you know, I've tried calf phrases, they're making things worse, actually. So the evidence-based intervention is actually making things worse. So, so where do we go? Well, well, I'll be classed as a, you know, an outlier and dis, dismissed now, you know, a non-responder to treatment. Um, but what about all the other stuff that's feeding into that painful experience? That that stress, the lack of sleep, the worry, the the um, the erratic sort of training of that person because they can only you know they can only run once every few days Let wait for it to settle but then they're so worried about losing the fitness that they run too hard in that session and it goes but listening listening to a patient and working out what it is that's influencing their pain will then guide guide some sort of therapeutic approach you know exercise moderation and some some um some positive reinforcement and some challenging of pain beliefs and a whole, a whole lot of things because it, at, at that particular time with that particular person you're starting to understand the complex makeup of the of their pain at the back of their heel it's not just a it's not just a thing it's not just achilles tendinopathy and therefore you do this it's a it's a it's a person who's having a life experience a lived experience that's that's multifactorial and we don't know what what type of Achilles tendinopathy that is until until we've explored that with with with, with the patient. Um, but with with systematic population level research, we can't really do that because we have to package things up in order to, in order to test them. We, we have to say this group of people have got pain at the back of the heel, so we'll call that Achilles tendinopathy, and we'll look at four different treatments and see which one work, works works best on average which is probably just by chance and, and not underpinned by any mechanistic theory either so so again sort of bringing it back down and, and this you know this ties in with that idea of of the um the the, the campaign for real evidence-based medicine you know trish Greenhalgh's idea of what evidence evidence-based medicine should look like where we gain information on the shop floor and let that feed up into population and community level ideas of what, of what, what we should be thinking about rather than feeding down from population studies to, to the individual. So it's, it's flipping,
0: flipping the model. I think there's, there's a lot to that, that, you know, if we're going to go down into, into a case study, there's a lot that we can sort of take with this approach and, and explore. I, I think you know, my my experience as, as both a podiatrist and a and an S and C coach, um, at a, at a rugby team, uh, is is probably you know, I, I see this a lot, and there's a lot of things that that we do that that aren't strictly evidence based. Um, you know, we think about if someone came in with what we think is Achilles tendinopathy. You know, we've got to look at their situation. I mean, why do people who, uh, well, who gets gets tendinopathy? Generally, the people that are very sedentary and the people who are very active, you know, the group in the middle don't get it. So immediately there's two different situations there. But then when we look at an athlete, depending upon the their sport that they play, um, even the position that they play in, the demands on their tendon is going to be very different. So how it came about is very different. We also think about if I'm I'm thinking about rehabbing that athlete. Probably exactly what you said. You know that person has like, that psychological experience. I'm part of a team. You know I don't want to be seen as as weak. I don't want to be seen as sitting out. Uh, I'm going to tough through it. You know so there's a there's a huge component there that will influence why they might keep pushing into it and we know that you know tendinopathy is is most likely a peripheral sensitization process meaning that you know if we keep pushing it that that sensitization is rather than potentially just strict tendon damage is a component so how do we find a way that can you know potentially move irritation away and that and that whole process of you know trying to to um calm things down in a way uh, find exercises and movements and things that keep them moving and not sensitive is an incredibly personal thing. We work with the athlete on that level and say, how much running can you do? How much calf raises can you do? How much game time can you have? Can we put you on a rower or do we need to keep you strictly off feet, you know, just standing still doing upper body stuff? Do we need to put you in a pool? Um, and none of those decisions are absolutely informed by evidence. Um at all, but it's following still a process, a sy- systematic process of this is what we understand from our general study of tendons, both in the Achilles and overall. This is our general approach that we know we have to, we're understanding the evidence and what it says, which is we can still exercise into pain and that we need to rebuild the capacity of a tendon. You know, with when an exercise seems to be one component of it, does it need to be general exercise, just having them run more? Is it specific exercise doing the exercise? Uh, like calf raises we can figure out a path you know to bring back what we sort of talked about in interview one you know the the evidence gives us a map but it doesn't show us the terrain and we use our experience in that discussion and that patient discourse to reach a point where we can customize and and, and find a plan that that works well for them, taking into account their their context, um, and and the things that that they need, and and I think you know when we talk about psychology and sociology, it's like well, what's the psychology and the sociology ha- always have to do with it? And it's like it's always part of it. It's always informing their behaviours, what they do, um, why they why they're doing it, as well as those other factors. Like if we were to look at it from a strict bio biological perspective, you know, sleep, stress, there are actual you know, no, chemical influences on, on on the tendon itself.
3: And you know the criti- the criticism for this approach, and, and the the sort of counter argument to what we're making is is often along the lines of, right? So 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 therefore, yeah, that's all very clever. You've explained you've explained this thing, but essentially what you're what you're saying is you're not using outcomes from randomised control trials, um, systematic reviews, and and clinical guide guidelines that are based on those systematic views so you're just you're just sort of doing what doing what you want um and and that could be anything but nowhere in your narrative there Alex, would that have led to you saying something like so therefore we're going to sort of you know use some crystal therapy or use use some um magic powder that's going to make it better or something so because you were still adhering to to what what is what is biologically plausible, psychologically plausible um, in in the broader realms of what we would call scientific knowledge. You're using information about what we know about the body, what we know about other experiences, what we know about physiology and pathophysiology and and response to training. Uh, So you're you're still working within a scientific paradigm uh, but including the patient in, in in the the person in in that as well, and working with them to understand what they say, you're not going to veer off suddenly into some some sort of weird world of 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 of, of other stuff. So, you know, that idea of um, so you can do anything you want, then mm-hmm. uh, you know, is often the thing is is controlled for by the very fact that we we do consider disposition and considers. There are multiple call, there are multiple variables at play in uh, manifestation partners in in understanding the causal process. We're not suddenly bringing in some 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 weird mystical world of I, I don't know whatever, which is which is often the, um, the the straw man that people set up when when you say. We're going to sort of challenge and try and build upon the idea of evidence-based medicine. Also, oh, so that is, so you, you know, you can do anything you want. Then,
0: no, you're still using
3: that very ra- reasoned, rationed pr- process to come to a a decision, uh, as you, as you've just sort of um, wonderfully narrated there in the in the, in that example.
0: I think that the, the thing that that I think about with Achilles. Tenopathy in that that example, and and not just doing anything, is that we still use. I still use a lot of information in that decision making process. We know that, you know, ten sessions or I think it was twelve sessions of massage is just as good as two sessions of exercise therapy. So I can I can take that and I can go. Well, you know, we can use that to inform our decision, and that very much in a lot of cases I will probably not recommend massage um for this specific condition but i can also understand that if someone goes massage has worked for me in the past before or things aren't going the way that that we, we we want to we know that hey that's a process that still happens it might be causally for their type of of tendinopathy if we're going to sort of use build on that analogy might respond more to that because we do know that that with this study that averaged it's saying the results are the same so there's generally people in both groups who are going to do better and do worse and so we can start to sort of reason that through and go well that's still an option but you know on the balance we probably wouldn't start with it or we'd collect information enough to say that that's probably a good idea to start with um in this case because of these reasons they've had it before it's worked it's been helpful they feel like that's going to be Um, something that's incredibly helpful for them and potentially there's other benefits of that massage as well because we know there's you know nothing is ever working just on on one point Uh, I guess you know a good uh, something that I can definitely sort of attach in um, to this uh, after our interviews is we do have a case study um, of patellofemoral pain syndrome and this sort of lack of focus of a um, person as an individual we actually have an interview with the patient as well that, that I think will explore a lot of these ideas as well because they said exactly that they weren't focusing on what was important to me what was wrong with me what was going on it was sort of I was given a blanket diagnosis and a blanket blanket treatment plan I guess this would be a good time to 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 bring you a bit more into the discussion Christine and and sort of talk about your experience with with dispositions um because i know that's that was a learning about dispositions and and using them um in your own treatment was was incredibly helpful
2: i'll just unmute so yes it yes it was huge hugely helpful to me i mean i would almost go to say as as life-changing in in my course through my persistent pain journey so i mean as, as you know i've Um, 12 years ago I had a manual handling accident, um, so I have sciatic pain back pain um, which has resulted from that but I think for the first four years I just used to think that pain my pain was really monocausal that it was only about the physical damage that was in my back and and that was my entire focus and to be fair that of my clinicians just focusing on on the the damage if you like in my back and and I was I was treated with standard interventions um, injections medications surgery standard physiotherapy exercises Um, but it just didn't work for me and I my pain management skills were were just about negligible and and it's easy to see why isn't it because I think as a society we're brought up to think of pain just being related to injury and illness, um, but I had no idea at the time that there were lots of different causal factors to, to my experience of pain. I just I just didn't understand why I was constantly in pain, why it was varying, and what the, the triggers for my pain were. And I think that's quite common, isn't it, Alex?
0: Hmm. Oh, in, in, incredibly common I think our understanding of of pain is really yeah monofaceted it's you've got an injury we fix that injury and that's that again that same thought process that goes into the you know that that direct um thinking of just applying an rct what's the problem here's the treatment this enough people got better that's that's obviously then that's the thing that's gonna that's gonna treat it where in, in, in we know now, you know, with a lot of the principles of, of pain that there's lots of uh, influences on a painful experience. There's lots of modulators and mediators. And while yeah. we might have, yes, in, in your case, there is a there is an incident, there is a level of tissue damage, the output of pain, the, the experience that you're having is not just solely because of that. It it changes based upon all these other dispositions that you you have. Uh, and I guess um, it was probably now would be a good time to share that that image um, that yeah. you brought along, everything everything matters. Yes.
2: So so I was I was very lucky in, in my pain journey that, that I was taught by a physiotherapist, Matt Lowe, who was actually well, to start with, he wasn't part of course health, but became part of course health. Um, And he helped me to understand um, that, you know, everything about me, who I am, what I do, um, how I feel, just impacts on my experience of pain. And this was a diagram that I drew while I was learning to understand my own pain condition and just thinking through what my dispositions were, what the causal factors might be. What the diagram doesn't show is, of course, all these different factors interact with each other. Um, and it's that interaction, and then be, becoming um, or going into a threshold that that puts me into a threshold of, of pain or, or conditions or or whatever. Um, but but yeah, that was that was a huge part of my my learning process. And what it did for me was it gave me an image in my mind, a narrative in my mind as to what my pain might be caused by or might be influenced by and having that understanding i couldn't change the fact that i've still got damage in my back but having the understanding of all the other factors meant that i could start to look for triggers i could start to understand what was impacting and then i could start to manage those triggers um and and you know change my environment um change my life to to actually be able to if you like just live better with with that pain
0: mm. it's it's very much yeah, then this is when we look at this um all of these sort of factors we know you know and this is this is where we sort of go this is this is still very scientific based because. You know looking at all these factors we know that when we look at people with persistent pain and it might not be directly in people with sciatica it, it's it's but these all can have an impact on on someone's pain the issue is is and why this is difficult to sort of use i think in in and uh, apply to clinical practices if so we've still got this idea of um cause and effect or treating the cause the focus is always on your sciatica and not on you as an individual And also the fact that like, how do we address some of these things, past traumas, self-esteem, social support, economic status, um, sleep disturbances, coping skills, some of these things, you know, we know we can build and change some things we know we can't. And I think it it sort of presents a a real big challenge because some of these things challenges our skill sets, definitely, but the other side of it is, is that you know, a lot of these journeys, if we're teaching someone coping skills, there is no one coping skill or 10 coping skills, t- take your pick. It's going to be incredibly different for every person. How do we build self-esteem, self-efficacy? How do we help people heal from previous traumas? How do we, um, you know, help someone build their own social support? That's not, you know, just hire a friend. It's a case of how do we help them make genuine connections with people that may not have had those genuine connections before or been part of a supportive relationship before I think this is this is the difficulty and these all these things in, interact. you know if you have lower socioeconomic status, are you going to naturally have as much ability to engage in social, social support, uh, get treatment for other conditions, deal with um, you know previous traumas, access a psychologist. Um, And it might be a completely different condition, but, you know, I've seen a patient, you know, just the other day who's experiencing extreme grief, you know, two years after the passing of a relative. And, you know, that's around the same time that their pain started and they've lost all the ability to cope. And when we think about graded exposure, all the other things that we do in terms of exercise and activity, they're just you know, we're looking at this going, this is just so much more complex. And, and it really sort of stumped me as to where we go. And part of it is that discourse of, well, we think these things are affecting and, and how do we, in a systematic process, essentially trial um, changes and things in in that in that patient.
2: I, I agree. And if you just look at the picture, I mean, it, it's huge, isn't it? So, mm. you know, how can you possibly um, attack, if you like, all those different things all at once? Um, but, but what, what I did with, with my physiotherapist was I started to, with his help, identify maybe what the most important factors were for me at that time, which would be different if, if I looked at it now, um, and I honed in on... Um, what I call negative contributors, but also positive contributors. So I looked at things I thought were negatively impacting on my pain with an aim to introduce them. But also I looked at things that I thought might improve my pain. So that this is a vector diagram that that I used at, at the time. So I recognised if you look at the pain contributors, I recognized that at the time that I had some family stresses that maybe I could address for me you know pain for me if i'm sitting down is is huge so i looked at how i might be able to minimize how often i was sitting or how long i was sitting at a stretch what i was sitting on so just picking out those those areas um worked really well for me um but also Thinking about the things that improved my things, uh, my pain, like relaxation, finding different aids, that was important too. And I don't think clinicians look enough at what might improve people's pain. I think they they mainly look, in my experience, at at what was causing the pain. But I created this vector diagram um, at a moment in time, worked on all these, these elements, and then created a vector diagram a few months later, uh, you know, the same thing. And I could actually see progress, so I could see what I'd progressed and what I hadn't, which was also very important to me. Um, but, but yeah, it's I've needed specific treatments for my specific sciatic, you know, prolapse disc part of it. But actually, that on its own wasn't enough for me. I needed to be able to understand the bigger picture, to be able to understand what what was it in me, you know, what dispositions in me, my anxiety, and so on, that was contributing to the pain, and then I could start to to manage my my situation much better, which moved me forward considerably.
0: Hmm. So it's, it's really about, and I guess this is, I, I always go back to the the example of uh, our treatment approach, let's say for a someone's fractured ankle, if we're always thinking about addressing just the cause and the specific injury, I mean, how do you go back and stop that ankle from being fractured or stop that incident? You're, you're now dealing with something that you can't change. And if you can't change that, how do we get the best outcome out of this situation with something that we can't change? What are all these other dispositions that are going to potentially lead someone down the pathway of this fracture leading to a persistent pain issue um, or this manual handling exos- exos- um, incident uh, turning into a, a someone with persistent pain? What might not be, that's a focus. But also then if you're left with someone in pain, yeah, focusing on those other dispositions, things that we can do around it. I guess my question, my big sort of question for for yourself, Christine, is that I know in my clinical practice, I know sometimes I I struggle to elicit these answers from patients because there is this idea of what seeking care is and sort of people are sort of uh, confused understanding that they've, they've come to me for an answer when I'm sort of trying to use them to help me formulate the answer. I guess for clinicians trying this that are hitting roadblocks, what would be, you know, your advice in terms of trying to get a patient, you know, or help a patient and sort of explore these things without also, I guess the fear is 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 feeling like you're you're asking them for the solution, you're outsourcing your expertise.
2: So so, I mean, obviously that that varies from person to person, but going back to what Roger was saying before there's a lot about therapeutic relationship isn't there so the, there's a lot about establishing a trusting relationship in which you can you can discuss a range of different things but but for me also I found that um, in a safe therapeutic relationship my my physiotherapist was able to say to me things. Well, you know, have you recognised that when you're in a meeting, what is your pain like then, and so on? So a lot of it for me was um, getting me to to recognise things in myself that I hadn't noticed. But but you're right. There, there's a whole societal problem that that we are brought up to. Um, think that you know you go to a GP a GP is going to fix you they're going to give you a tablet and then you'll be well again so you know a lot of it a lot of change needs to happen on a wide society level in terms of understanding about pain and in terms of understanding that fixes may not happen Um, and it, it just depends doesn't it so that clinician may work for that particular patient and they may be able to go down that line. It may need to uh, a different clinician for whatever reason. It may be different time points for that person. So maybe right at the beginning wasn't the right time to tell me. Um, I suspect it was for me. But, you know, certainly within a month or two, you know, then I could have been told and so on. But for me, it's getting to know that person getting to know that narrative and being able to communicate with them in such a way that that you can help them to understand it's not easy though is it
0: it's it's not but i i think what you've what what you sort of said is that you know when we're focusing on the person in front of us that's really what person-centered care is is is, is advocating for is saying and and we've got you know so much evidence to say that when we personalize care we focus on the person you know and this is on that that more population level that things things get things get better I mean I know the BJSM um, articles how to treat you know 10, 10 tips for or 11 tips for treating musculoskeletal pain is personalized care and so much of it is exactly what you said listening developing a relationship working with the person figuring out what works for them and I guess I'm Reflecting on my own practice, I, I definitely do remember one case of, of a patient who came to see me and had this long list of, um, you know, really sort of complicated, um, rare diseases and and processes and pain. And it was interesting because the, in that case, you know, there wasn't immediately enough of a relationship that that I sort of said, "Look, this ain't this ain't going to get get better. You're probably going to have pain for some for some time." what are we going to do to manage that first then let's look at your overall condition um, and what we can do about that and i wouldn't have done that in most cases but for that person you know there was something there that was telling me you know this is a person that would probably be very open to that message and be, that would be very helpful and i guess um that did come to fruition where when she came back she said thanks that was really good to know and it was hard to hear but it was still brilliant in terms of putting her on that journey of figuring out what was happening. And I guess that's, in your case, it was a, you know, you're sort of saying there's certain messages that wouldn't have been good first session, but definitely building that relationship, understanding dispositions, understanding what we can do when and how and bringing things up at the appropriate time. Maybe once there's a relationship that's built up, that that's a a process that does help
2: Yeah, and there's also something about multidisciplinary work, isn't there? So um, not just clinicians, but a variety of professionals, carers, um, family, just everybody working together for that person, isn't there? and um, mm. can also be very beneficial. So if one person may not have the relationship to have some difficult conversations, then then maybe somebody else in part of that team can. But also sharing the knowledge, sharing the evidence um, for that particular patient, I think is important as well.
0: Well, yes, that, that that's it. You know, when we're bringing in people in the wider wider team, and we're looking at a medical team. Is because if we're thinking about psychological and social sociological influences on pain, then really when we're dealing with that, the wider medical team is everyone involved. Um, you know, everyone that potentially has a is a stakeholder in in that case, and. I know in, in the UK at the moment they've got a big sort of push, you know, don't medicalize um, exercise or don't medicalize, you know, there's that sort of that process of we don't always have to, by focusing potentially solely on just those biological, direct biological components, um, and we miss out a lot of this sort of stuff, often we we can just lose sight um you know everything and i think you sort of explained this this last time if i'm remembering correctly everything just kept focusing on the medications and because we weren't evolving and thinking about a wider plan um uh that we sort of missed all of that and we ended up with a very narrow focus and so when you went and you was talking to matt you know your focus wasn't was on your pain um, and how do we fix this rather than what's your pain like in meetings or what's your pain like at different times. Mm, Indeed. I think, I think we, we, we understand that, you know, we get to understand the complexity better over time by collecting information and, and and involving also more people in the team who will look at things differently.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's a a wonderful spot to end on. Uh, I think we've, covered a lot um and i think that there's a lot of really good information in terms of where we can go and expand on here not just the theory of dispos- dispositionalism but really sort of good some good case studies uh, i guess i'd ask you guys before we go is there anything else that you would you'd want to add or, or finish off this discussion with
1: so i would i would like to add that i think it's very um typical that you would think that for most uh, patients the clinical studies are going to be representative that what happens in the clinical study is the normal or the average but I think what I learned from the clinicians in my network is that the more normal uh, patient is the complex patient So you might think that you can use the the, uh, evidence that you get from these clinical studies on most people, and if it doesn't work, then you have to adapt. But I think what the clinicians in our network are saying is that everyone needs something that is adapted for them. Everyone needs to be uh, treated as complex uh, patients, and everyone needs to be treated as unique, so that you cannot assume that there is a standard intervention that is going to work for even most. So I think that's really important to take home that if, the, if we think that causes are dispositions and everyone has a unique set of dispositions, why would we assume that for a kind of normal standard patients, they are sharing all these dispositions that are going to be relevant?
0: I think that I think that's a that's a great point. It's um it's highlighting that that really any study is gonna have a level of unless it's a every single person is reported as an individual and all their individual factors, there's always going to be some averaging. And there's also always gonna be inclusion and exclusion criteria. So just by having a study and it being averaged and it's sort of being um reported as this is what happens for this condition, we we are still dealing with people who causally have very different dispositions and we've just sort of you know looked over that that so so that sort of it's that myth of that average patient yeah i think that that's a, that's a brilliant point that that yeah we're not just talking about complex patients or people that don't respond it's it's everyone it's just for one reason or another sometimes when we treat people like average patients and give them an average treatment plan there are enough people that get better that it seems like it works Brilliant. Well, I think that's that's it for, from us for for this interview. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for for joining for joining me and um, providing your expertise. Thank you. And uh, we'll be <laughs> we'll be back very soon with uh, a third interview um, where we're going to, I think, talk a little bit more about how we can have uh, better sort of discussions and how our overall approach um, to some of the data can can affect some of our outcomes. So getting a little bit more into some some nitty gritty stuff um, and I'm looking forward to that, that chat as well.